welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am joined by Lisa Williams, the Principal Clinical Psychotherapist and Manager of the Anxiety Disorders Residential Unit at the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Lisa is passionate about providing good treatment for anxiety disorders and has further specialist training in compassion-focused therapy. We will be speaking today about what compassion-focused therapy aims to do, what it involves, and what mental health disorders it can help to treat. Can you start by telling us a bit about what led you into compassionate-based cognitive behavioural therapy? I was a nurse for years and then I I trained as a CBT psychotherapist. I was working uh, with many, many clients actually that CBT was very effective for, but then there was this part of them that said, look, Lisa, I know logically what you're saying and we've gathered all this evidence in treatment and I get it on a logical level, but there's something that's stopping me feeling it. So there's I think what we term now as a head heart lag, there was knowing it, but not feeling it. And I was really intrigued by this because this wasn't just common to one person. I'd I'd experienced this a lot with a number of people that I've been treating. And at the time I was working at the Centre for Anxiety Disorder and Trauma, and I took this question to supervision and lovely Nick Gray, who worked there at the time, said, oh, Lisa, this question has come up quite a lot, but there's something that I think will really help your clients and help you understand this. And this is something called compassion-focused therapy. So as the eager student I was, I went back and read a lot about compassion-focused therapy and uh, Paul Gilbert's book, The Compassionate Mind. And that really led me on to doing a postgrad in Derby with Paul and studying compassionate mind and compassion-focused therapy. So that's a great segue into our next question as to what is compassionate-based cognitive behavioural therapy? We follow a definition which has two psychologies, and one is the turning towards suffering within ourselves and other people. So turning towards the stuff that's really painful and then being motivated to alleviate that suffering. So the two psychologies is one turning towards and the other is then what do you do about it? Paul Gilbert uses a a great sort of analogy of going to the doctors with a broken arm and the first psychology is you know I'm in lots of pain I've got this broken arm and the the doctor says yeah I can see you're in pain that must be terrible and you say but no like I can't move it's so painful I can't sleep at night I can't concentrate on anything and he says I really I really can see how much pain you're in and of course you don't want somebody to just notice and witness your pain or your suffering you then want the next psychology which is to be motivated to do something about it so you want of that doctor don't you to send you off for x-rays or maybe give you medication or have a closer look at it so those two psychologies are really important and that's what the anxiety disorder residential unit where i work it's a lot towards turning towards the things that we really, really struggle with, and then working with our clients to help alleviate that suffering. 
for example, we might look at the motivation behind certain behaviors with our clients. So there may be somebody that goes to the gym all the time or works really hard, and that can be celebrated in society and within each other. But actually, we're looking at the function underneath those behaviors. So we'd be saying, actually, if you were you know, one going to the gym all the time may be the motivation maybe to be healthy. That's great. But how about if you stop going to the gym, then what? And some of our clients will say, oh, no, I don't, I could never do that because then I have to sit with myself and then other emotions come up. And that's where the curiosity lies. We're like, aha, this is what we need to be curious about. And then help that client to sit with those things that are really difficult, that maybe they've used other behaviors to sort of mask sadness or anger or regret or anxiety sometimes. And I'm curious as to why attach the compassion to the CBT component. So what distinguishes compassionate-based CBT from regular CBT? My experience is that many of the clients that come through our anxiety disorder residential unit have severe difficulties with anxiety disorders, whether that be OCD, body dysmorphia, post-traumatic stress. And what's really interesting about the client group that we have it's not uncommon for them to have high levels of self-criticism and high levels of shame. That can be a blocker between that head-heart lag that I originally started talking about. And when we get people to talk out loud how they talk to themselves, what we find is that they're often highly self-critical or they're carrying a lot of shame that actually has been buried deep for many years. They have never expressed what they feel ashamed about. And it really has coloured the way they see themselves, the world and other people And sometimes it can cause them to have disconnection with other people, which then feeds into them, making them feel even more threatened and more isolated. We use a lot of sort of, you know, Brené Brown when she talks about the power of vulnerability and thinking about how shame, love, secrecy, silence and judgment to grow exponentially. And empathy is the one antidote to it. So a lot of our community is, is a compassionate community where we try and induce sort of compassion for each other, not seeing myself as sort of an expert and that I'm different from the clients I work with, but we all share a human experience. And in that way, we share appropriate sharing, but we also try and make our environment in which clients get treated feeling safe. So it's not about just externally in the outside world feeling safe, but we try to help people feel internally safe, so psychologically safe. So they're able to turn towards those things that they've been really struggling with or they find difficult in life. Which is so crucial because I think, as you so rightly say, a lot of us who suffer with these addictive behaviours or anxiety-related disorders, we really struggle with that compassionate side and and igniting that sense of self-acceptance and learning that actually we're enough, we're okay, like we can survive. And as you say, if we don't go to the gym or if we put down a behavior, that sitting with that discomfort is normal. Like that's what human beings kind of have to learn to tolerate. And it's almost being comfortable in the discomfort and knowing that actually the discomfort is a good thing. Absolutely. And that takes huge amounts of courage. And what we find in a compassionate community is that we celebrate somebody's courage with compassion so it's the noticing that someone's moving towards those things that they really struggle with and rewarding them in that moment with noticing and being compassionate towards them they're more likely to do it again and repeat healthy or alternative behaviors that are going to be helpful not harmful so we're really sort of motivated to help people move from a traumatized mind, which colors the way we see ourselves, the world and other people, to a mind that is more soothed 
and more feels more sort of psychologically safe because you make different decisions in those sort of mindsets. Absolutely. And I think that's another key point is this, it's this abyss of that you one often falls into when you're recovering of going into that self-sabotage because you do something mm-hmm. good and you fight one demon and then you'll go and do another behavior and completely sabotage it because you're so not used to feeling that level of yeah. ease or compassion that you then want to go and destroy it in another way. Absolutely. And actually being able to recognize how you're talking to yourselves in in that moment is key. So, you know, these have been your best efforts at keeping yourself safe for many years and it's not your fault. That's a really key part of compassion is that, you know, we're doing everything we can to try and keep ourselves safe, doing the best we can. And sometimes they can be helpful behaviours and sometimes they can be harmful behaviours. But if we can try and understand that our minds are working off a better safe than sorry mentality, threat-focused mind, just trying to keep you safe. So, of course, you may have struggled through life at certain aspects of what life has thrown at you. But what we're really trying to help our clients do is move towards those things that are finding difficult, really noticing the courage that it's taken to do that celebrating their sort of intuitive wisdom because many of us know deep down what's good for us or what can be helpful or we may have to relearn that Um, but to be curious and not to shame ourselves or to be self-critical in those moments because sometimes things go well don't they when we're in therapy and other days they don't go so well but then if we berate ourselves hide under the covers for days and think you know what's the point I am worthless then that's going to be really unhelpful for that client, but also further shaming themselves or upping their self-criticism, making them it, the impact on sort of low mood is then very high, isn't it? And that feeling of disconnection from humans, you know, not wanting to reach out, but actually wanting to hide away makes things even more difficult. And that feeling of isolation, I think, is highly threatening for the mind. You know, we're social beings, we're supposed to be in social circles. And yet, you know, some of our behavior keeps us very isolated and very apart. Yes, it's the judgment and the shame, I think, that is so crippling. And it's really a matter of learning that actually, we're our worst critics. And actually, we judge ourselves so much that we assume everyone else is judging us. But as that slowly abates, and that self judgment turns into a bit of compassion, it's amazing how one's judgment of other people actually subsides a bit too. Yeah. And I think there's something about like the power of group dynamics where we work, you know, people make themselves very vulnerable and share something that they feel ashamed about or share their internal thoughts or some of their behaviors that they feel shame about. And then somebody else in the group goes, oh my goodness, I'm not alone. I do that too. And then there's sort of that sense of common humanity, like we're all in this together, which can be a real motivator because it moves us away from like disconnection to connection. and, And that's motivating in itself, I think. And who is it generally aimed at, compassionate-based CBT? I mean, what conditions is it used to treat and what have you seen the most effective results with? I think compassion-focused therapy is for all of us. You know, every single human on this planet would benefit from compassion-focused therapy. You don't necessarily have to, you know, be on an anxiety unit where I work. We all, actually as therapists, we all train in compassion-focused therapy because it works from the inside out. So it's a common human experience that we're all sort of, we've all got tricky brains. We all have these struggles and really just like you, I have a tricky brain. So there's that sense of connectedness in that too. So whilst, you know, there's a lot of research out there, which is showing the benefits of compassion focused therapy, I think it's important to recognize that actually 
each and every human being can benefit from it. Mary Welford actually set up a compassion school, one of the first compassion schools in Saltash in Cornwall, and actually, you know, helped young children in primary school develop a compassionate mind. We know now that we're ranked, aren't we, from a very young age doing SATs and exams, but actually teaching children how to talk to themselves from a very young age can have huge impact later on in life and throughout their lives too. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Do you think people find compassionate-based CBT effective in the long term and do you see people keeping it up or do you think that they tend to do it for a stint in treatment and then after they've left they sort of move on I guess it depends on the individual but on the whole I think our clients catch themselves and how they talk to themselves so they will often say to me Lisa I found myself being really self-critical in that moment And then I've redone that very thing, but I've warmed up the way I talk to myself and I've offered myself compassion in that moment. But also I think other residents, because we are a community, point out to each other, that doesn't sound very compassionate. And so there's sort of that constant sort of reinforcement and reframing of how people talk to themselves. We also do soothing rhythm breathing. So I don't know whether you know much about that, but it's about how we we slow down our breathing, sort of slow down the body to slow down the mind and for many of our clients that are highly anxious as you know like you know it's really difficult isn't it to often they're so in their heads that they're not really in the world outside so they miss the changing seasons they miss people that they're passing on a path you know because they're so focused on on threat and so if we can bring down the the threat system so it's not ruling the show and they're able to engage in their soothing system then they're able to look at themselves others and the world around them in a very different way and that can be really helpful so the breathing I think people have carried on doing those the breathing exercises just sort of noticing tuning in and we have like really key things like when the traffic lights are red remember to just breathe a little bit deeper and slower than you would do normally when you're boiling a kettle or you know these key moments in the day which people are reminded to do their breathing but also I think through treatment people are develop they develop a um, compassionate image and that can be really powerful and then they some clients actually draw or do artwork sort of externalizing their compassionate image and that that's something that they take around with them either on their phone or, you know, um, they've got a picture on their wall and that that can be really lovely. So they hold that in mind. So they don't, you know, often a, many of our clients say, oh, you know, I carry that compassionate image with me through difficulties when I'm going to my first job interview or when I'm going to meet a friend and I haven't seen her for years because of my anxiety disorder. You know, I take that part of me with me and that's really lovely. So there's some key practices that many of our clients say that they t- have taken with them when they've left Adri. You mentioned group work being so powerful. Do you think that a lot of this compassion is more effective done on a group versus a one-to-one basis? Not necessarily. I I, I think um, our clients have individual CBT and they also have individual uh, compassionate minds. And then um, weekly they have a compassionate mind group. So they're bringing a lot of what they're doing in individual therapy to the group 
to explore difficulties because it's not easy compassion. It's really tough stuff, you know. I think it's the reality of life that it's full of pain and suffering and, you know, we've only got a certain time left on this planet and all of those things are difficult to hear. And there's a lot of sharing around that in the group, but they're sharing what they've also done in their individual therapy, such as chair work, for example, or talking out loud how they talk to themselves. That can be quite difficult for a number of people to, you know, explore with their therapist because they're so ashamed or they're embarrassed by, you know, how they talk to themselves. But once that's shared within the group, you know, there's a lot of, sometimes there's humour around that as well, and that can be really helpful. Um, But just that shared sort of, like I said, that common humanity, that they're all in this together and they're all struggling in different ways, but very similar ways too can be quite comforting. So I don't think, from my experience, like group is any better than individual. I just think it's everything combined. It's difficult to pull out what one thing is the most helpful. But I do think a community setting for our clients, they, they would say being in a community with other people where they felt so alone for so many years has been the gift really in some ways to know that they're not alone. And then seeing people at the end of treatment and other residents come back and they volunteer for us and seeing that you know people have gone on to lead a life they so deserve that has been stripped from them for many years and to come back and share experiences of being at Adri 10, five years ago is so encouraging for our clients, you know. There's so much that's part of their treatment that it's difficult to know which is the most helpful, I guess, Pandora. It's a long way of saying that. <laughs> Lisa, I want to also just ask you about ADRU in general because it's something that I only discovered a few years ago and I think it's an incredible facility that for people who are really at a critical point should know about. And I'd love for you to tell the listeners a bit about what it is, what it does and what conditions it treats. So it's two houses set on the grounds of the Bethlehem Royal Hospital, which is in West Wickham. It is set within acres and acres of natural woodland and grassland and orchards. And I think that setting in itself sort of induces that sense of safeness because it's very calm. There's so much wildlife. There's badgers and foxes and cockatoos and, you know, there's just, it's incredible. So that whole setting is one thing to mention that a lot of people come in and it hasn't got the same hospital vibe, I guess, as other hospital sites across the country. So we're very fortunate to have that. So we've got two houses and within those two houses, we've got a number of beds. We've got 18 beds and that serves people. uh, It's a national service, specialist service that um, helps people with anxiety disorders from all over the country. And that's people with obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic, disorder, uh, emetophobia, which is vomit phobia, post-traumatic stress disorder, any of the anxiety disorders really, but I've mentioned the main ones that we cover. And people stay with us for 16 weeks. So they have intensive uh, therapy and you've heard some about the therapy that we offer, which is cognitive behavioral therapy primarily, but also compassion-focused therapy ACT. Our clients also engage in a full program. It starts at eight o'clock in the morning where they set their daily intentions and exposure response prevention tasks for the day and behavioral experiments. And they share the difficulties of the day before or some successes and they talk about what they're grateful for. So it's a really lovely shared space where people begin the day. And then they have a program um, between nine and five, Monday to Friday. And that includes other things like occupational therapy. So gardening, 
drama, music. We've also got a guts cafe on site where we're looking into the uh, benefits of gut health for our mental health. And that's also a vocational place where people can learn sourdough. We've got a pizza oven and making very nice barista style coffee, which we all love. But that means it's giving key skills to people that may have not worked for years. And it enables them to get like CVs to move forward in their life in different areas that they might be interested in. We're quite a small team. We are a very compassionate team. I guess we've all got a background in compassion-focused therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy. Also, we use a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is called ACT. We have a housekeeper. Lovely Lisa wakes people up in the morning and just finds out how their night is. And that sort of generates that home environment. But it's not easy. It's very involved. It's very intense and People work alongside assistant psychologists to really challenge themselves with some of the things that they've been, they fear or they are struggling with. So yeah, there's groups, there's individual therapy, and we are one community. So we each know about each other within the team and we work very, very closely with our clients, their families, and sometimes their communities, getting people back into the community where they've become isolated over time. And for people who think that they need to go to ADRU for residential treatment, how do they find out more about it? So they can ring us up and find out. So um, you can give the links for either the ADRU uh, email or the phone numbers and they can actually speak to somebody about the unit or they can speak to their uh, local care coordinator or CMHT and see whether they're eligible for a referral to ADRU. It is for severe anxiety disorders. So most of the referrals that we've come come to us have had already, some of the clients have already had two episodes of CBT treatment. Um, they may have been on certain types of medication. That may not have been that helpful or help them to live the life that they need. And they're unable to find something maybe locally that's going to be helpful for them. So we get lots of referrals from CMHTs and people have to be under a care coordinator to be able to make the referral to us. Yeah, I mean, to reiterate, it is for severe cases. It's not a matter of, oh, I'm suffering from some mild anxiety. It's for pretty critical cases yeah so there's something called the y box and it measures the severity of people's ocd or body dysmorphia so it has to be within the severe range on that um psychological questionnaire well lisa it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and um i'm so inspired by all the incredible work you do oh thank you thank you for listening to this episode of healing 101 Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.